It's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. How many of you have been here now for all four weeks of this series? This is a moment of confession, I guess. Um, how many of you have that video memorized at this point? I feel like I have that Bill Maher line memorized now after a couple of weeks of, of that video. Hey, I want to uh, pray for us here first before we jump into this. So join me here for a moment in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning grateful as always to be able to have the time and the space to gather, to be able to, uh, to worship and to hear from your word and to take communion together and simply just to be together, God, in this moment, week in, week out. We are so grateful for this. This morning, though, God, it, it, in this particular series and in this particular conversation, uh, I know that there's a lot of big intellectual questions. And as we, as we step into this moment, I, I would ask God that you would meet us there, that you would help answer some of those questions. Uh, but even more than that, you would draw us beyond just the intellectualism of the conversation into relationship and further into relationship with you. And as we've just been singing, God, that we would know more of your grace. We do have these questions that... that um, rattle through our minds and can, and can um, cause angst uh, in our souls. But again, God, I hope that we would be able to move even deeper than that to the relationship piece and, and into knowing that you love us and care for us and you've demonstrated that for us so clearly in the person of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. So God, we give this moment to you now. We know that we bring in many things with us to a space like this that are our concerns and worries of the week. We ask now that you would hold that for us so that we can fully enter into this and hear from you whatever it is that we need to hear from you this morning. God, give us the courage then to respond uh, to what we find. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. All right, let's start with this. It's interesting how, especially if you're like me and you've gotten a little bit older, how things from our past, our childhood, our earlier days now seem out of date and even out of step with the sort of current cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Amy and I have had this experience recently with the book series Little House on the Prairie. Okay, how many of you know Little House on the Prairie? Maybe, maybe you watched the TV show way back in the day, or you read these books, or, or your parents read these books to you. If you're not familiar with Little House on the Prairie, it's a series of books written by a woman named Laura Ingalls Wilder, and they tell the story of her family as they move from the woods of Wisconsin to the plains of Kansas, part of the post-Civil War uh, movement of people west of the Mississippi. And the book is, I think, fairly honest about some of the hardships that, that people face during that time, some of the difficulties of making that migration. But it also has kind of a sort of sweet, nostalgic view of history. Again, if you've, if you've read them or you've watched the TV show, you sort of know what I'm talking about, right? All these stories within the books about harvests and hunting and preparing and preserving food, all the work that went into that stuff, churning butter. Everyone, after they read the book, wants to go churn butter for some reason. It's part of the experience of Little House on the Prairie. Now, having said all of that, we recently started reading these books to our kids. We read the first book to them, and we were immediately confronted with the harsh reality that there is some seriously racist stuff in those books. You know what I'm talking about? 
And so we'd be reading this, and we'd come to one of these passages, and it was like, oh, uh, turn the page, skip ahead a few, a few paragraphs, and then get back into the churning butter. Now, <laughs> jokes aside, these books were written in the 1930s and 40s about an era of history that took place in the 1870s and 80s. And so what I want to say here as we set up our conversation this morning is this. I'm not trying to dismiss problematic history, but we do well to remember the context and the era from which certain things come to us. And this is, again, especially important for us as we read Scripture. Little House on the Prairie, 80 years old, about an era of history, 150 years old. The Bible is about events and people from thousands of years ago. And, and uh, the events themselves are sometimes thousands of years before they were even written down. C.S. Lewis famously coined the phrase chronological snobbery, which is kind of a snobby phrase to uh, be known for. But chronological snobbery means this. It's the argument that the thinking, the art, the science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present simply by virtue of its temporal priority. In other words, if it's, if it's new and it's current, it must be better than whatever came before it. And for a lot of us, we tend to do this with Scripture. We read our 21st century 2018 ideas and cultural values into a text, scripture, that is thousands of years old. And so I think we need a little bit of humility when we come to certain passages, like the ones that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, out of all the weeks in this series, I've been really excited for this series and this conversation. Again, continue to believe that this is, is so formative and important for our community. But this is the week that I, have, I was not excited about, and I still am not excited about it even now. <laughs> But we're looking at some of the Old Testament passages that are known as the conquest passages. All right? These, these texts where God asks his people to wipe out a city or wipe out a group of people. And, and we're calling it the Joshua Paradox. We'll be looking at, at that here in just a moment. Before we get into that, though, I just want to say this. We've said it every week, and it's, it, it's worth repeating. The goal here in our in our series is not to answer all of our questions. Certainly, I hope that we are able to answer some of them. But this is less about answering every question, more about creating a space that is safe enough for us to even voice those questions, to name our doubts, to wrestle with these difficult, deep, hard truths of Scripture. Safe enough to do that, but then dangerous enough to be changed by what we find, to be transformed by the good news about Jesus. So again, our paradox this morning, the Joshua paradox, raises all kinds of questions for us. Is there a God of the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament? Is the Old Testament God angry, the New Testament a God of love? How can God have compassion on the Jewish nation, which messes up so many times over and over again, and then have very little compassion towards other nations? Is God a racist? How can he order the annihilation of a whole group of people? And then how can he turn around and ask us to love our enemies? These are some of the hardest questions for me. Okay, and again, we're calling this the Joshua Paradox, the God who is terribly compassionate. 
So let's get right to it. If you have a Bible, open with me to Joshua chapter 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will come around and make sure that you have a physical copy of the Bible. As you're looking for that, Joshua comes fairly early on. It's uh, the sixth book right after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just a little bit of context here. Remember that the last couple of weeks we've been looking at Abraham and Moses and Job, and we've seen how God chooses Abraham, says, I am going to make your family a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and your family will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Abraham's family grows. They end up settling in Egypt. They become slaves in Egypt, and then God rescues them miraculously from this slavery through the leadership of Moses. Then they head out on this journey back to the land that God had promised to Abraham. And along the way, they send some spies ahead of them to check out this land. What's going on there? Who's there? Is there any kind of resistance that we're going to meet when we get back to our home? And these 12 spies, they go out, they take a look, and they come back, and they say, wow, the land is like really nice. It's flowing with milk and honey, and and it has all this fruit in it, and it seems really great. However, there are these really big people. And they have really sharp weapons. And so the people think, oh, this sounds terrible. We're all going to die. It would have been way better for us if we had have just stayed slaves in Egypt. And so the result of all of that is that God decides that this generation will not get to enter the land. And so they end up kind of marching around in the desert for about 40 years, waiting for all of those people to die off. The only two from that generation who will get to go into the land are uh, the two spies, two of the 12 spies who thought, hey, we can do this. We can go for it. Caleb and then a guy named Joshua. And it's Joshua who ends up taking leadership from Moses. Now Moses gives a, a farewell speech to the people who will be entering the promised land. It's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And in that book, he gives them instructions for what to do when they come in to the land and encounter the people who are there. Deuteronomy chapter 20, a good example of this. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So here we have one of these texts, one of these moral monster texts, as as sometimes the the new atheist movement uh, will be very critical of. How could a loving God ask his people to do this? All right, so that's the background. That's the backdrop. Now we get to Joshua chapter 6. This is kind of a famous story. Um, If you've been around church for a while, perhaps you've heard about the the city of Jericho and the walls of Jericho that come tumbling down. Here's here's the instructions that God gives his people about this city. Starting in verse 1, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. And when you hear 
Then sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. These are kind of strange instructions for taking over a city. For some reason, we love telling this story to our kids. My, my kids uh, heard this story for the first time, I don't know, seven, eight months ago. And my son, Cruz, for the next couple of weeks, would just like, do this thing where he'd run around the house. And then he'd yell, Jericho! And he'd just fall down on the ground like as hard as he could. And, and for some reason, that really got into his mind. But again, the instructions here are to wipe out this city. So for six days, they do this. They do this kind of silent marching thing around the city, go back to the camp, spend the night, do it all over again, and skip down to verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are, be, are to be, and remember this phrase, devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. We'll talk about Rahab here in just a few moments. But here we go, right? The battle is now on. They, they, they all yell, they blow their trumpets, and then again skip down to verse 20. The trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. And they, again, that phrase, devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and don't forget about the donkeys, okay? Very important part of the story. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, so there, there we go. Here's one of these examples of, one, of a passage where God asks his people to do what we would think of as this unthinkable act. What do we do with this? So what I want to do here for a moment is, is kind of take a step back from the paradox itself and talk about some ways that we can help synthesize this into the, the, the broader story of Scripture because it's very important that we're able to to place these kinds of problematic, difficult texts within the bigger picture. All right, so I'm going to give us what I hope are four tools for synthesizing these stories. Then we'll get into the actual paradox in, in just a few minutes. So first, it's important that we recognize God's patience. Okay, and we see this show up in, in this story in a couple of different ways. First, going all the way back to the book of Genesis... Genesis chapter 3, from the moment that sin enters the picture up until Abraham's story begins in about Genesis chapter 12, the number one manifestation of sin, our broken relationship with God and with each other, is violence. And there's this repeated cycle of human beings destroying each other all throughout those first seven or eight chapters after sin enters the picture. So when God chooses Abraham and his family to be a blessing, part of what he is saying is, you guys are going to demonstrate a different way. Part of your blessing is alleviating the violence that plagues creation. Here's one example of this. Genesis chapter 15, God gives Abraham an insight into what the future is going to look like. He says this, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And this, of course, is uh, predicting their 
slavery in Egypt. Then down to verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's a weird phrase. What does that mean? Now, verse 16 here, this, again, the sin of the Amorites, widely debated amongst scholars. Amorites here is used in sort of a general way to refer to the people living in the land with Abraham. And the traditional view of this verse is that God is giving the Amorites time, 400 years, to repent and to turn back to him. And he's doing this at the expense of his own people. God wants to give them a chance. So on the one hand, in this, we see God's patience, but then we also see the reality that God will do something about the problem of evil. There is a reality where these people are in rebellion against God. They are violent towards one another. They are violating God's design for his creation, and so they are not without fault. And this leads us to the second point here, the second tool. God's judgment is always within the context of a larger moral framework, namely his moral framework. In other words, God is not sort of whimsically deciding to destroy people. There are consequences for evil and rebellion. There are consequences to violations of God's design for his creation. Now, one of the problems that, that we have with this idea, with these kinds of texts, is that we've seen numerous horrific acts, right? You just, all you have to do is turn on the news any given day to, to see evidence of this. And in particular, we've seen them carried out in God's name, genocides, the Holocaust, all sorts of egregious unjust behavior done in God's name. And so we feel very angry about that. We have outrage about that. And that's actually a good thing. It comes from this deep hardwiring within us, this desire for justice. We want to know that the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the other things that we've seen happen in history, that there is a consequence for that. Those folks will be held accountable. We want to know, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Dear God, let that be true, right? So we do want God to hold someone accountable when we encounter real evil in our world. And again, I think this is part of our problem here in the 21st century. We have a really hard time labeling things as evil. Kids being separated forcibly from their families is evil. Walking into a school and shooting up kids and children is evil. And these are, are deeply complex issues, but without naming evil for what it is, without judgment and accountability, there is no moral framework. And part of the story of Scripture is that God is the judge and God is just, and so therefore his moral framework is good and just and right, James 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Now, the events of Joshua 6, again, bizarre to us. But we must trust 
God's justice, his moral framework, and not our 21st century value system. All right, third tool here is to consider the uniqueness of these accounts. What God is doing here is not giving sort of a carte blanche of how to deal with cities that we don't like or people that we don't like. This is limited to this group of people in this particular place at this moment in history. Another way of saying it is this. God is holding the Amorites accountable for the sins they have perpetrated. He is not laying out a blueprint for warfare or global domination. And then notice stuff like this. This also from that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, then lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. Now again, to us, that sounds kind of harsh. But what God is asking his people to do in taking back the land is quite different from normal warfare of that day and time in history. Again, we might find these stories to be shocking for their callous dismissal of groups of people, but for those living in the ancient Near East at this time, they would have found these instructions shocking as well, not for their callousness, but for their mercy. Make an offer of peace? Spare the women and children? Man, these Israelites are soft. So again, these instructions are limited to retaking the land. They are not in any way a blueprint for a military campaign. And by the way, if you hear someone quoting these verses as a way to justify a military campaign, you just need to yell liar at your TV or your phone or whatever it is that you're looking at. Fourth tool. We need to appreciate the nuance of the language. And this is something that I wish we could spend more time on, but we don't quite have the time for it here this morning. But just real quick, there's a word that's used in a lot of these texts, the Hebrew word harem. H-E-R-E-M. <laughs> this is the word that gets translated uh, utterly destroyed or devoted to destruction. John Walton is a, a professor at Whedon College. He's done some phenomenal work with the Old Testament and with Old Testament, uh, the context of the ancient Near Eastern cultures from which the Old Testament emerges. And uh, just if you are in the sciences, if you are a student studying uh, biology, if you are just interested in these kinds of things, a couple of great books on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, The Lost World of of Genesis 1, the lost world of Adam and Eve, really interesting, helpful tools for those of you who are in the sciences. He also has a book on these conquest passages. And his argument is that this particular word, harem, devote to destruction, rather than being a, a genocidal, wipe everyone out sort of phrase, is better used, better translated as remove from human use. And it's a word that's used not just for people, but for objects as well. And so part of what he's arguing is that God is asking his people to retake this land so that it can be used for God's purposes. 
The idea is less about wiping out all the bad guys and more about creating space for God to do what he wants to do. Now, that may open up a whole bunch of more questions for you. Um, go buy the book. <laughs> I, just, I mentioned that, though. I give that to you as a thought because sometimes the things that we take as being obvious in the English text uh, sometimes have more nuance uh, and are more complex in the original language. Now, I'm not saying we need to be Hebrew scholars to understand the Bible. But again, for some of these difficult texts and difficult questions, it's helpful to know that it can be a little bit more complicated than maybe it appears on our page. All right, so hopefully those are four things that kind of help you synthesize, place that within the larger story of Scripture. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty of the paradox of a terribly compassionate God. And the question I think here is, is it possible for God to be both merciful and just? And if we're really being honest, maybe the question behind the question is this, is God scary or is he trustworthy? Is God scary or is he trustworthy? So let's break this paradox apart just for a moment and start with the, the first part of it, the terrible part. How is it that God is just? Psalm 9 says, the Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. So again, a major theme all throughout scripture is this truth that God, at the end of the day, is the ultimate judge of humanity. In Revelation 20, we read this, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. God is our judge. And he will hold people, he will hold nations accountable for their actions. And there is an element of that that maybe sounds a little bit scary. I would argue that this is ultimately good news for us. Because one day, God will finish this work and his justice is not just about punishment. It is about making everything new again. It is about restoring his creation back to the way that he always intended it to be. Revelation 21, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Again, God's justice is leading us towards this, towards everything being made new, every tear being wiped away, no more mourning or death. And this leads us to the other side of the paradox, God's mercy and his compassion. Second Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Again, this idea, this theme of God's patience with us. And then these words from the book of Isaiah, which I think help us hold this tension really well. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. 
Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Longs to show you compassion because he is a God of justice. This paradox leads us, I think, to worship God in a very healthy way because it demonstrates that God's patience is meaningless without judgment. But his judgment is merciless without his extreme patience. Let me say that again. God's patience is meaningless without judgment. And his judgment is merciless without his extreme patience. And the character that exemplifies, embodies this for us, is this woman Rahab. Rahab is the absolute wrong person to be the hero of this story. She's a woman. She's a prostitute, and she is an outsider. She is not an Israelite. She's a resident of Jericho. But she helps God's people out by hiding the spies that come to check on the land. And as a result, her life is spared. The life of her family is spared. And she becomes a part of God's family, so much so that she becomes one of Jesus' ancestors, part of his lineage, and the New Testament lists her, names her as a hero of the faith. Rahab is exhibit A for the power of the gospel. That by faith, God saves us and God uses us, the most unlikely of people, to be part of his plan of redemption, as part of restoring his creation, as part of making everything new. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And this is Rahab's story, and if we're being honest, this is our story. The unlikeliness of God's grace. Now just a couple of closing thoughts and then a story, and then we'll uh, we'll pray and we'll take communion and sing together. First, this paradox, the Joshua story, reminds us that God does, in fact, take evil seriously. God does take evil seriously. And so these sorts of passages should actually humble us and should lead us to examine our own capacity for evil and the capacity of the lands, the nations that we live in for evil. And that humility should lead us to repentance. Second thing, God is patient and just, and again, that is good news for us. His justice is good news because evil will one day be punished and eradicated, and his patience is good news for us, for our salvation. And then finally, we do have a role to play in all of this, and a huge part of that, of course, is testifying to Christ crucified, sharing the good news of Jesus. 
Jesus on the cross is God's justice and mercy on display. Him saying, I am doing something about evil. I'm overcoming the power of sin and death and violence and destruction by taking it on myself. And I am going to forgive because I am gracious. God's justice and mercy on display. Now, one way that we get to share this good news is by modeling a different way of life, a different way of being in the world. And Jesus does, in fact, say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so a significant part of God's redemptive plan is our role as his ambassadors and living out a different way of being in the world and loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. This way of being in the world is not about power and domination and destruction. It is about serving and loving, and it turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Now, a, a number of years ago, when I was first coming back to my faith as a college student, I got into one of those late-night dorm philosophical conversations that you know, 20-year-olds have when they should actually be sleeping but they're hanging out and they're talking. <laughs> and in particular, this conversation was about this tension between God's mercy and his justice. And we were, we were creating all these bizarre hypothetical situations and kind of asking, like, what would happen if, if, if you did this? What, if you happened, what, what would happen to you if you did something terrible and then you dropped down dead right after it? Like, what if you, what if you robbed someone and then had a heart attack? What happens to you? Again, totally ridiculous conversation, but we were young and trying to figure it all out. <laughs> what, what was troubling for me about this conversation is there were a couple of folks who were, who were very passionate about, uh, you were in trouble if that happened. That if you didn't have the time to repent, you were sort of out of luck. Tough beans, right? And, and honestly, it really kind of, it really kind of messed me up. And I remember talking to my dad about this, and I was explaining to him, you know, the scenario and, and, and some of the different things that we had come up with. And I, I said, you know, what do you think? What would happen in that situation? My dad told me this. I will never, ever forget his answer to this. First of all, he said, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. Steve, don't ever underestimate God's grace. Don't ever underestimate God's grace. If you are struggling with this question, how can God be just and merciful? How can God ask us to love our enemies and then in the Old Testament command his people to wipe out cities? My final word of encouragement to you this morning would be this. Don't ever underestimate God's grace. If you're struggling with how could God love and accept me given all the terrible things that I've done, my encouragement to you would be don't ever underestimate God's grace. And if you think there's no way God could ever use you to play a role in his plan of redemption, again, I would say to you, don't ever underestimate God's grace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, um, a big, 
difficult intellectual question. And some of these passages in Scripture are honestly very difficult to read. And they do bring to mind the atrocities, the injustices that we've seen, that that we've experienced, that some of us have escaped from. And we think, how could you even be in that? The good news of the gospel, though, is that you have entered into it in many ways, specifically through the person of Jesus, becoming a human being, taking on flesh, living with us, and then in the moment of the cross, taking on all of that, absorbing all of that for us, dying in our place, so that we may have forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration to right relationship with you. Thank you for taking the initiative in that and giving us an opportunity to come back to you. God, I pray for those of us this morning who, who, um, who are wrestling with that question intellectually that um, they would be able to find some answers to that, but also that they would seek deeper relationship with you. I pray for those here this morning who, who maybe have never responded to your offer of grace and abundant eternal life, God, that they would accept that even now in this moment. And Father, for those of us who are wrestling through the things that we've done, the ways that we have perpetuated evil in our world, may it humble us to repentance and drive us back to you because we need your grace. We need your mercy. We are grateful for your patience with us. God, may all of this lead us deeper into worship, both for your justice that you do take care of the problem of evil, that you promise to one day wipe every tear away, and to hold that with your mercy. God, we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.